You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. My name is Chris Spangle, and it's great to talk with you today. And I love history. It's uh, one of my favorite topics that we don't discuss enough here on the show. And one of the reasons is a sixth grade field trip to Washington, D.C. And we went to George Washington's home, Mount Vernon. And uh, I really started studying the founders uh, really heavily after that and fell in love with it. And I imagine that so did the guest that I have on today is John Burlaw. And he wrote the book, George Washington, Entrepreneur, How Our Founding Fathers' Private Business Pursuits Changed America and the World. He's got the uh, book up there in the video. And John is an award-winning journalist, recipient of the National Press Club's Sandy Hume Memorial Award for Excellence in Political Journalism, and a senior fellow for finance and access to capital at the great Competitive Enterprise Institute. He's also a columnist for Forbes and Newsmax and has contributed to the Financial Times, Washington Post, Politico, and the Wall Street Journal and Washington Times. So, John, when you decided to, how did you decide to write this book about George Washington? Aren't there enough biographies about George Washington? Where, where did, why did you decide to write another one about him? Well, it was it was actually a, a trip to a trip to Mount Vernon, as you as you mentioned. When Mount Vernon now, I would urge everyone to, to to go there. There's still a lot of stuff open, even with the the lockdown. They have have rebuilt some of his enterprises, like the um, uh, grist mill, flour mill, and the whiskey distillery. Um, uh, in the past, in the over, oh, about a, about a decade ago, showing you know some of his enterprises and some of his creativity as an entrepreneur. And I just never knew, I just never knew the side of him that he could actually build a whiskey distillery, something fun like whiskey, which is one of the, and made it one of the largest of the country. So there are a lot of books on Washington, but you get, you know, the things like the cherry tree legend when the real things he did that how he planted at a greenhouse built to plant uh, orange trees and lemon trees and all different kinds of trees, as well as building all different kinds of business, is so much more exciting. And he's so much more than the face on the dollar, and I wanted to bring him to life. Yeah, that was one of the most surprising parts about Mount Vernon, is his industriousness. And when you when you study the founders, you know, John Adams' brilliance, or Jefferson's writing, or the academic work that a lot of them... And Washington doesn't get lumped in as necessarily an intellectual it's always said oh well he he only read magazines and newspapers and he, he but he was a great leader you know your book really highlights that he was a very intelligent man who had a lot of different interests and skills in in much the vein of the other founders did he not 
Very much so. And he well, and, and he didn't have the same advantages as, as them. He, you know, his father died when he was 11. He was a middle child, didn't inherit much at, at, at first. So he had to really quit school like around when he was 13 or 14. But he was he never he never let his education quit. He was self-educated and contrary to what other scholars have thought. And this is just coming in from from new information about his book inventory actually people saying things that he underlined in in the in the books he had and you know purchase orders that he made where he bought books he read everything he read quite a bit he read he read uh, shakespeare political theorists uh, like john locke he pro- he almost certainly read the wealth of nations when adam smith when it came out laying the foundations of capitalism in fact he used the phrase invisible hand from which smith had used you know in washington using as an inaugural thing and he would also read about books about agriculture to learn, you know, how to how to grow be- better crops, how to grow hemp and wheat rather than tobacco, as well as things like there were how-to books then. People complimented him on what a good horseman he was, and and uh, some were saying or have said that's natural ability or experience, and it was both those things. But their shipping uh, shipping orders and receipts show that he actually ordered books about how to be a good horseman, how to do jumps, how to take care of sick horses. So he, when he wanted to find out something, one of the things he would he would do would, would read, and he read a, gra- a, a great a great deal, even though he didn't have the formal education that Jefferson and some of the other founders had. So let's talk about the diversity of Mount Vernon in terms of what it produced as a farm, because many of his neighbors were tied to tobacco, but he he had a lot of different ventures. What are some of the things that George Washington did at Mount Vernon uh, as a farm? Well, in the 1760s, after there was sort of a tobacco glut in Great Britain, when people, when the colonists grew tobacco, it was primarily for export. And that meant you had like, insurance, the shipping duties, you had to pay pay the middlemen, plus the British, you know, had had duties on that. Whereas he saw he could sell things like like wheat for the domestic market. In fact, he took a cue, he learned from everyone, for like from some of the German immigrants, smaller farmers that were selling, selling wheat. He said, well, why can't we do this on a big farm, a big plantation like Mount Vernon? So do, do you mean marijuana when you say weed? Oh, I, I said oh, you're saying wheat, wheat. But he also grew hemp. Wheat. Wheat. Okay. Wheat. All right. There we go. Okay. Wheat. The yeah. the wheat. tea wheat. The, the tea dropped out there. Okay. I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't, uh, well, well, <laughs> he okay. did grow hemp, although there's no evidence he smoked marijuana. In fact, he used hemp from Mount Vernon is now growing hemp, hemp growing hemp again now that, uh-huh. now that it's legal. But with but he integrated his enterprises for, like with some of the surplus wheat. He built a grist mill. Um, that uh, that uh, and put the wheat into flour, which he he put his own brand name on it, G. Washington, and really has shipped throughout the colonies and to the British West Indies and to Great Britain itself. So he had like an internet an international brand of uh, of flour, and then he would go into all sorts of things like you know mule breeding was one of the first Americans to breed to breed. Uh, um, mules had a mule breeding service, and eventually, after he was president, he built uh, a whiskey distillery, which Mount Vernon has rebuilt. So, just different, so many different kinds of businesses there. Where did his entrepreneurial spirit come from? That's a good question. I think part of it was that he had to. Uh, it was just uh, survival skills when he was uh, when he was uh, 
11, but, and I think his, his mother had, you know, was, uh, you know, he, there was, he didn't always get along with his mother, but she, you know, she sort of made him, uh, made him, made him tough and, you know, taught him, uh, self, uh, self-reliance and, uh, his, I, he started out as a surveyor surveying land and his older, uh, older brother, Lawrence, the Fairfax's, um, uh, uh, Fairfax family who he surveyed with taught him a lot about just, uh, business and looking at, you know, how to do ledgers and things like, things like that. So, uh, uh, I mean, he kept very neat ledgers and, you know, invoices of, uh, of, of accounts and was one of the wealthiest men in, in, in America when he, when he, in a new nation when he died. Is there any evidence that his farming and that this industriousness impacted his military and political career? I mean, I don't think you can, when you have a man who has three identities, separate those identities. How did those things flow together for George Washington? In a lot of ways, they did. Um, it has still, it has always been a mystery how, um, how the Continental Congress, people from different colonies, you know, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, uh, others, in a day when there wasn't mass communication, how he was named general on the, fir- on the first ballot. Um, his, he did wear a military uniform there. He was, he was, you know, a colonel in the French and Indian War, but his, you know, his exploits in the French and Indian War weren't that great. But there is a clue when Adams talks about, when John Adams in his nominating speech talks about Washington and his good character, and he also mentions his independent fortune. So I have a theory that his, that I lay out in the book uh, in George Washington Entrepreneur, that he was, you know, because people knew him from his flower, because it was like an international brand and they recognized the name, that was one of the reasons that he was nominated as general, that his business leadership, and you know, you, you have to, you'd have to manage, um, uh, you have to manage so many, so many expenses there. And he was, and there was, there's a great letter I quote in the book where he's ordering, uh, he's ordering beer and cider for the troops and uh, just talking about some of the specific things that they need. And he knew that, you know, he wanted, he early on said we should get the best map makers and pay them and he was writing to congress for an appropriation and then i think as a surveyor just knowing the land the topography the conditions you know and what he was seeing from the map makers making he knew more about the terrain had the home field advantage if you would call it than the british so that on things like crossing the delaware on the second battle of trenton where they you know fought some of the elements of nature but he knew you know, that there was sort of enough for safe passage for his troops where the British, you know, might have uh, balked at, you know, going through some of some of this land that he knew the land, you know, from, you know, being just surveying and real estate explanation, uh, his his vocations there. And that played into, you know, knowing the land for, you know, in, in the military for a battle. So what you're saying is from the beginning of the country, a successful business brand can be leveraged into a presidential career. <laughs> uh, that's Basically, yes. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, the, the surveying part of his life is often not discussed, but it seems to be in, in everything that I've read about Washington, a very formational part of his life and a very significant part of his life. I mean, can you talk a little bit about, I mean, when we think of map making in the 1700s, I mean, it's not like Google Maps with a car driving around everywhere, right? Um, 
can you talk a little bit about not not only what what he would have done as a surveyor, but also how that impacted the rest of his life? Yes. Well, he was a surveyor for two, uh, for about, uh, I mean, as a professional career for about two years from like being like 16 to about 18, started the first survey in like the, the Shenandoah Valley in, 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 in Virginia, some of the West, Western part of Virginia, including West Virginia um, in, in, the, in those years. He also surveyed what is now the city of Alexandria sort of like, you know, the, the streets are still based on some of his, uh, his on some of his original surveys. And he would do that. I mean, as far as, as far as, ba- as far as battlefields and things like that, examine the boundaries of the land for the rest of his life. His last sur- survey of Mount Vernon was like five weeks before he died in 1799. So it's interesting. I didn't, I talked to some, professional surveyors today and they still use George Washington as a model. Hmm. And it's kind of funny, you know, he had like a, a tripod with a compass on it. And you look at uh, surveying equipment today, it's, it's almost in some ways it's similar because you have a tripod, but you have a GPS attached to it and a camera instead of the, instead of the compass. So it's sort of like some things are part of the same profession and it's still a viable profession. You really don't need a, to be a surveying technician. And depending on the licensing of the state, you don't really need, you know, um, you know, to go to, to go to college for. So uh, there are lots of jobs that have gone by the wayside. We still need a lot of surveyors. Angie's list recommends, you know, you have a survey done every time you buy a home. Hmm. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, we are talking to John Burlaw, who is the author of George Washington Entrepreneur, How Our Founding Fathers' Private Business Pursuits Changed America and the World. And, uh, you know, he also helped foster a lot of innovation. Can you talk about how he helped other innovators and inventors in early America? What impact did he have as a steward and a mentor? Very much so. He was he was interested in in promoting uh, in promoting in, in, invention, and uh, he welcomed inventors. He said he he had a, a speech when he was president. He welcomed inventors here and you know from elsewhere if they wanted to uh, em- emigrate here. And when he and people would you know after the war people would come to uh, come to him send their invent send their <laughs> inventions or write letters about them to Mount Vernon and. Uh, if he if he would endorse them if he if he thought if he if he thought that they were viable, but he came across a, a guy named uh, he could really make a difference in, in an inventor's life. He, he came across a guy named James Rumsey uh, in uh, West Virginia in in what is now West Virginia, um, uh, who was building a building a house uh, uh, for for him for him there, and he had had an inn and. Uh, Rumsey was trying to build him a mechanical boat and the, a boat, excuse me. And the townspeople thought he was a crackpot, but Washington watched it and wrote this great letter of endorsement. And because of that, Rumsey got a patent. This was before in the 1780s and Washington was a private citizen before the U.S. Patent Office was created. Rum, so he, Washington's letter helped Rumsey get patents in Virginia and Maryland. And then Rumsey uh, would, would, change the boat slightly so that it would be a, a steamboat and you know run on steam and he was able to get it to run like seven miles and he and the guy named john fitch were credited actually in a patent in washington's administration from being the first inventors of the steamboat 20 years before 
Robert Fulton commercialized it uh, in about 1808. Well, that's, that's fascinating. Um, you know, finally, I think we can't end without talking about the very real elephant in the room, and that is slavery and the fact that Mount Vernon, you know, he was a slave owner. It ran on slaves and an oppressive system. I mean, as an author, um, how do you approach that and how do you deal with that? I was pleased to to read, you know, there's 20 pages in the book about uh, about this. But can you touch on the the moral, I mean, the moral stain, basically, in my opinion, that that he used slavery as a way to be entrepreneurial. Doesn't that de- diminish George Washington's reputation in your view? The fact that he owned slaves diminished his reputation, uh, as well as, you know, the other founding fathers, as well as, um, you know, that of people in, in the world at, at, the, at the time. But we have to, I think we have to take into account that uh, he was, this was the world that he, that he knew when he was born in. As, as we know from the New York Times series, uh, the first slaves came to uh, Virginia in uh, 1619, and George Washington was born 113 years later in uh, 1732, was a part of his world. And it's important to note that even before 1619, the great African-American historian Henry Louis Gates Jr. points out there were already 500,000 slaves um, in the in the North American and the American territory and the uh, in the well, the American continent by uh, the, the Spanish, the Spanish and the French. And uh Henry Louis Gates has also said slavery is as old as as, uh, as civilization it's, itself. But Washington recognized the wrongness of slavery and took steps. What I would say would be to the beginning of the of the of the end of it throughout throughout his life. One of the ways was um, you mentioned you know that he used slaves in his entrepreneurship. Um, he used slaves. He used enslaved. Yeah. Well, first, I mean, his on his survey, there were things he did without without enslaved enslaved people, including including the sur- the surveying. So not everything everything was dependent on uh, on 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 slave on slave labor, but in the farming in Mount Vernon, certainly, and they were certainly a part a big part a big part of it. But when he switched to from tobacco to uh, some of the other things, including the grist mill, the whiskey distillery, where the enslaved people were some of the distillers. In fact, today they're honored. That was one of the things that that he where he saw that um, uh, that um, African Americans were capable of different types of labor. That they were intelligent, and that slavery, the system of slavery, was holding them back. He also saw that from the free blacks who fought in the war, and he would write to people in letters that, you know, he knew would be public because letters were public in his lifetime about how he was going to despise the system. In 1774, in the Fairfax Resolves, which was a precursor to the Declaration of Independence, Washington and George Mason publicly condemned uh, Britain for foisting what they called the cruel system of the, of the slave trade um, uh, on, the, on the colonies. And then Washington would also take steps at cost to him, where he would um, he would not very rarely break up uh, slave uh, families uh, as far as as far as selling an enslaved person if that uh, if that would break up a family. 
And then when he when he died, he went in 1799. He went further than any founding father who had slaves. That he he freed all of the slaves. He owned outright 124 enslaved enslaved people um, upon upon Martha uh, upon Martha's upon Martha's death, and she freed them early. And also until the until the 1830s, for some 30 years, provided for their um, uh, you know annuities or pensions for their old for their old age, and uh, tried to provide education for the for the younger uh, uh, freed uh, uh, freed slaves. So he you know he didn't you know he's not he is not a he's not a perfect man, but through this I think through this example and others, he led to a more perfect union. You know, when you start off young and you start off in life and in certain systems, and then as you get older, things change you and you start to realize some of those systems are wrong and you you start to push back on things that you believe for a long time. I mean, what was the catalyst for George Washington? I imagine there has to be something that started to, to change his view and caused him to go down that path. What Do we have any indication what that might have been? He talked to a lot of people who were anti-slavery. He had friends among the Quakers and, you know, the Marquis de Lafayette was, was, uh, who was his, uh, uh, who, who came over, was a part of the French aristocracy who came over and volunteered and was one of the top commanders. And, you know, Washington had had at Mount Vernon afterwards, actually was involved in some of the business ventures, like getting some of the donkeys from France. I mean, that, um, was, was, uh, we know that that he that the Marquis de Lafayette opposed slavery and talked to Washington about that. But again, I think it I think it was the entrepreneurship and um, uh, and 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 going and with Ma- transforming Mount Vernon sort of to industrial enterprises. He could see that African Americans could do different roles and uh, and and that uh, not just farm labor. Uh, with 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 teaching, even though you know it was still at they were still enslaved and at the point of the gun, and that and that and he just saw that this that this was that you know this was um, I don't know that he ever embraced full equality, but he saw that um, it was keeping them from reaching their potential as human beings, both from seeing the work that they could do in the different kinds of industries he was entering into. And the, the the free blacks who fought valiantly in the war. In fact, he, he corresponded with the child prodigy uh, poet uh, Phyllis Wheatley, um, who had who had who's, whose fa- whose family had had, free, had freed her from slavery and wrote a very. She wrote a letter you know, praising. Him. She wrote a poem praising him, and then he wrote a a piece, you know, calling her Miss Phyllis and saying how saying how how nice it was. So. He would just the examples of African Americans, both you know that you know under under his enslavement and and under his command and and the war. I think I think changed him seeing the capabilities of what they could do, as well as talking to people like the Marquis de Lafayette. Do I mean not just from a utilitarian point of view? I mean, was there a relationship that he had with his slaves that may have changed him on a personal level? So, you know, you, you say you mention. Uh, he didn't, I mean, let's just call it what it is. He had a white supremacist view that he, that they were, whites were superior to blacks. I mean, but did he form any friendships through these entrepreneurial ventures that kind of helped him see them as human beings? 
I think he certainly, he felt, you know, uh, a bond. I mean, the one that he freed immediately was, you know, like his personal valet during the war, Billy, Billy Lee, and said he can live, you know, he can go where he wants, but he, but he can live in Mount Vernon free or free of charge with room and board for the, for the, for the rest of his life. So, yes, very much so. I, 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 I think, I think he was seeing um, uh, that uh, of what they could uh uh, you know, some of the, some of the capabilities that he could do. I mean, there was there was um, uh, um, a slave he had called Hercules, who eventually um, uh, um, uh, ra- uh, ra- did did ra- did run away uh, successfully. And uh, but he had been cooking dinners, you know, state dinners when Washington was president and Washington, you know, noted, you know, how impressed he was saying, you know, he was, you know, he ranked with some of the best uh French chefs. Um, uh, so I think he was, as far as both the talents and the, the, the kindness he saw, the, the, the bravery of some of the uh, free, uh, free black soldiers in, in, the, in, the revolutionary, uh, in the Revolutionary War. So I think, yeah, that, 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 that affected him. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I, I just want to recommend the book, George Washington, Entrepreneur, how Our Founding Fathers' Private Business Pursuits Changed America and the World by John Berlaw. It's spelled B-E-R-L-A-U. You can get it at Amazon. Uh, that helps the rankings. And, uh, yeah, I mean, final thoughts on George Washington, the man, and, and you know, where folks can follow you. And, and uh, one more plug. I am at Twitter at, at @jburlaw. My website for my organization, great organization uh, that is really interested in barriers to entrepreneurship and promoting financial inclusion and the America's heritage of uh, a free enterprise is Competitive Enterprise Institute, CEI.org. And I just wanted, I wanted to go back to the inventions a minute because there was one, Washington would also promote balloonists. He welcomed them into the country and had a big celebration when there were some French uh, a balloonist, hot air balloonist, which, you know, had begun in the 1780s and Washington woke up there in the 1790s. And he wrote something to a friend about, about this saying, well, one day they will be coming from France by, quote, flying through the air. So he was in, you know, in the days when, you know, horses were the main form of travel was envision, in, in, envisioning commercial passenger flight. And so that he it shows that even though he had he didn't have a formal education he had a great imagination and was and really was as creative as innovative as some as as franklin and jefferson in his own way all right well thank you so much for joining me again george washington entrepreneur john burlow thank you so much for being here thank you so much for having me chris thank you for listening to the chris spangle show we appreciate it and we will see you again tomorrow